You are listening to Australia's tax news podcast, Tax Talks, the podcast for Australian tax professionals. Welcome to episode 95 of Tax Talks. This is Heidi Robson and thank you to Klaas for sponsoring this episode. What is a family trust election and what is an interposed entity election? When should you make one or the other and when not? What is a family group? Can you determine who is in or out? And when do you have to pay family trust distribution tax? And when not? Paul McMorris of Cleary Hall in Brisbane will answer all these questions. So here's Paul. A family trust election is a choice made by the trustee to specify a particular individual and they're called the test individual around who the family group is formed. The family group then sets the maximum range of beneficiaries amongst whom the trustee can distribute without, I guess, triggering adverse tax consequences. So the family group generally includes the test individual and their spouse, any parent grandparent, brother, sister of that test individual or the test individual's spouse, nephews, nieces, children of the test individual, their spouse, and any lineal descendants of any of that group, and generally the spouse of anyone also mentioned in that group. So it's fairly broadly the family group of that test individual. But who is in the family group and who isn't is not determined by law. It's entirely up to whatever that family trust election says. Whoever the test individual is, you mean? Yeah. Yeah, so the test individual is who the trustee puts on, on their form. Oh, I so see. But then after that, after that, the law says whoever is your spouse, whoever is your son, whoever is your yeah. daughter, and whoever else we say, always branched off that test individual. Oh, really? So the law actually defines family group? Yeah, based on that test individual and those categories we just went through. So they're all linked to that one test individual. I see. So if we make Bob the test individual and Bob has an Auntie Jane, the family trust election can't say Auntie Jane is not part of our family group. No, it doesn't say that. The law says who is in your family group. So I see. So Auntie Jane is in, whether Bob likes it or not. Yeah, you don't specify who's out. All you do is you say, I'm the test individual, and then the law works out who is in my family group from me. It doesn't give anyone in that group any rights to anything. All it is is a tax consequence that if I am the test individual and I distribute to someone who's not in my family group, as the trustee, obviously, then that will incur a family trust distribution tax, okay, which is taxed at the highest marginal rate. Hmm. So what it's designed to do is to allow a trust to become a family trust, which, which has other consequences in other parts of the law. It just makes it easier for that trust to access other parts of the law But what it then says is, well, because you're a family trust, you can only distribute to people in your family and you can't distribute to people outside your family group. And if you do, we're going to tax you more significantly as a result. So the trust deed can define a family group and the trust deed can say Auntie Jane is out. And the trust deed can say, but 
Peter Smith, who's a great friend of us, is in, but the family trust election then just has this set group or set definition of family, and Auntie Jane is in that definition, and Peter Smith, our long-life friend, is out. Absolutely. Sorry to butt in. Using Auntie Jane as an example might confuse you, and I apologize for that. My fault. Auntie Jane is actually Bob's sister. Bob is the test individual in the example. Bob's children call her Auntie Jane, but she's Bob's sister and hence included in the family group of Bob as the test individual. But if Auntie Jane wasn't Bob's sister, but was actually Bob's aunt, then she wouldn't be part of the family group because aunts and uncles of test individuals are not included by law in the definition of a family group. So it all depends on who you make the test individual. Back to Paul. If we made a distribution to Peter, Peter would be taxed heavily for it because he... Peter or the trustee? If a distribution goes to a person who is outside the family group... Like Peter Smith? Yep. Then the trustee is liable to pay family trust distribution tax, which is tax at the highest rate on that distribution. Plus Medicare? Yes. I think it's plus Medicare, yeah, it is plus isn't it? Medicare, that's right. So 45% plus 2% Medicare, that's so 47%. Right. Yeah. So that's a fairly significant reason not to make a distribution outside the family group. And that probably comes to the NESA aspect is that the decision to make a family trust election should actually be a decision for a particular purpose not done just as a matter of course. So if a client comes in with a new discretionary trust, we shouldn't ordinarily just be making a family trust election. We should be deciding, well, is one actually necessary for our client's circumstances? And if the answer may be that it is, then we should be doing it. But the family trust election has no effect on any rights somebody might have to trust property. No, that's right. It's merely a tax mechanism to allow the family trust to access certain measures in the tax law a little bit easier. It has no bearing on any entitlements by any of those people to trust property. And the family trust election doesn't just cover income, it also covers capital. Yeah, it covers any benefit that is paid to anyone outside the family group. So then the circumstances where you might consider making a family trust election would be where the trust receives frank dividends, or the trust has losses, for example, or the trust owns shares in a company with losses, or you might want to bring one trust within the family group of another trust in order to distribute income between those two trusts, or it's part of a, a restructure using the small business rollover that was brought in a couple of years ago. In those circumstances, it can be necessary to make a family trust election. So when we're talking about franking credits, the reason we need to make a family trust election is that if you're receiving franked dividends, you need to hold those shares, what they call at risk for at least 45 days. And 45-day holding rule is kind of the, the name given to it. But obviously in a family trust scenario, there's questions about, well, who has the entitlement to hold those shares? That's when, if we're looking to distribute more than $5,000 in frank dividends to any beneficiary, that trust will need to have made a family trust election in order to pay that dividend through. 
Is it five thousand of franc dividends or five thousand of franking credits? Five thousand dollars in franking credits, sorry, and that's franking credits to that individual across all shares they might own. It's not necessarily just in relation to shares that might come through that trust. So five thousand dollars. You're the accountant. Well, you'll probably be able to do the math, but I wouldn't have thought that the dividend would be particularly high to receive $5,000 worth of franking credits. In ordinary circumstances, a family trust election would probably be required for most share-owning trusts. But certainly that's something to consider. So in relation to the trust loss measures, the trust loss measures in Schedule 2F are complicated and complex and really require, I guess, you to look through them each time you're trying to work through whether a trust meets the requirements. Now, if a non-fixed trust makes a family trust election, they then become what's called a family trust. And it means that rather than having to meet four of the tests, that trust only has to meet the income injection test. In the way that you said earlier, it's about ensuring a fam- or discretionary trust can fit within certain parts of, of the tax laws. In this context, it's about saying, well, if the trust wants to claim previous losses, then the only test that we need to meet if we're a family trust is that income injection test. And once we meet that test, then we can claim the losses The same applies for company losses where shares are owned by a trustee. In those circumstances, we would need to meet the continuity of ownership test or the same business test. So in those circumstances, again, it makes it a little bit easier if we've made that family trust election to access those reduced number of tests. Coming back to the income injection test, income injection is only an issue if it comes from somebody outside the family That's right. Group. As long as we have somebody within the family group injecting income into the trust, we basically can get the losses out of the trust. Yes, that's right. And the reason behind and the benefit of the family trust election is about defining that family group for those purposes. So if the test individual, if if the income is injected from a trust of which they're the test individual as well, then there won't be an issue. But again, it's about defining that family group so that we can say, well, Peter Smith, if his trust injected money into our trust... Then he would be an outsider. Correct. That's what it's designed to do, is to work out, well, who is in the family so that we can determine who the outsiders are. Do you know how strict that is? In terms of part four, you mean? Yeah. It would really be a matter of, I guess, looking at the circumstances. Obviously, this was, I think, driven towards stopping those types of schemes where you, back in the late, mid to late 90s, there were lost trusts traded and people would go and buy trusts with big losses so that they could run the money around and through. And part of a family trust election was designed to stop those sorts of things. And certainly the income injection test was certainly a part of that. Part 4A, I haven't seen it used in that context probably the family trust election would help to reduce any nefarious activity that might come up Mm. in that area. Certainly Part 4A is always out there to to be used if Mm. necessary. I think Part 4A is probably more scary to accountants than 
it's probably ever used. It's a fairly big stick that the ATO wield in big circumstances, I think. There's a feeling that they, oh, they might use Part 4A on this and, and you have to think, well, this is a fairly ordinary circumstance of two family trusts. There is the ability to distribute income between the two and, yes, one has losses, but that's part of the system. I think from time to time we get caught up thinking Part 4A, this might grab a hold, but Part 4A determination by the Commissioner is a fairly serious endeavour that they don't do lightly. Family trust election makes it easier to inject income into the company from within the family group. I guess it makes it a little bit easier to determine if you meet the test and to determine who is an outsider from looking at, well, what has this trust made a family trust election, has this trust made a family trust election? If the same test individual is in both, well, then certainly it's not an outsider. So I think it makes it a little bit easier to determine that. But what the family trust election really, really does is cuts out some of the tests that you have to meet. So you only need to meet that income injection test rather than some of the other tests. It kind of has both of those aspects, but really it's about trying to avoid those circumstances of artificial loss trading and those sorts of things. Another aspect of family trust election is bringing one trust within the family group of another trust. In the circumstance we just talked about where you might distribute income from a profitable trust that has distributable income and you might distribute that into a trust that is not profitable, it might have made losses in the year, thereby take account of those losses and and offset it against your gains. Well, you may want to then bring that trust within the family group of the other trusts. So that may be another reason why you make a family trust election. And sometimes it may also be appropriate to make what's called an interposed entity election for companies, for example, where that company you might be distributing frank dividends to a company. Some circumstances you may not pay any, you know, there may not be any tax differential. And in that circumstance, you would need to make what's called an interposed entity election to make sure that all of the entities fit within that one family group so that there's no no issue with family trust distribution tax. I see. So let's say we have a scenario where the test individual had a company and incurred a lot of losses in that company. That company is kind of just simmering along now. The test individual starts a new business venture as a discretionary trust, makes a family trust election, includes this company in it, and it needs an interposed entity election for that. The company makes one back to, makes the interposed entity election to say, well, it fits within the family group. Oh, I see. So the interposed election is actually the company saying, I want to be part of that family group. Yes. So in that case, the company must make an interposed entity election. The discretionary trust makes a family trust election and includes the, and includes the company. No, it it wouldn't include the company because it just picks a test individual. So if it use me as the scenario, I've got a discretionary trust in which I'm the test individual in a family trust. The family group doesn't include companies. But I might be the shareholder 
sole shareholder in that company. I wouldn't structure it that way, but let's take that example. Because I'm the test individual and I'm a shareholder, sole shareholder, company can make an interposed entity election because the same group effectively owns the shares in that company. Yes, if somebody else owned the shares in the company as That's well, right. then the company couldn't make an interposed entity election, That's but right. because the test individual is also the 100% yeah. shareholder, it can. Yes, that's right. Okay. And, and I guess that's where the interposed comes into interposed entity election because the test individual is a person. You then have a company in the middle of the shareholder who happens to be in the family group. In that way, if the company didn't make that interposed entity, entity election, well, then you have that tax consequence of distributing outside the family group. That's why if you're going to distribute in a bucket company scenario, we need to make sure that if it's frank dividends, for example, then you've got to make that interposed entity election. And you said before that you wouldn't structure it this way, that the company has 100% shareholding in... In an individual name. Mm. For a number of reasons. One, asset protection. So there's two reasons why you would use a bucket company to take distributions of income, and that is that the individuals have already paid enough tax for the year and they want to park it in a company that has a 30% tax rate, for example, But if you then own the shares in an individual name, if that individual gets sued for whatever reason, well, they've got a valuable asset there. The other reason is that if you've distributed income to that company, if you're going to pay dividends out to the company, we have to pay them all to the individual and there's no flexibility there. So what I would do is have that company owned by a discretionary trust rather than an individual, but you make sure that that family trust is again has the same test individual in its family trust election so that all of those entities, the original trust, the, the company and the other family trust are all within that one group and fit within the family trust election regime. And would you have two discretionary trusts? So would you have one discretionary trust who owns the shares in the company and then another discretionary trust that has, for example, the share portfolio? Or would you yeah, Ordinarily, you yeah, you would. Sometimes you can combine the two, just depends on the circumstances. You want to try and avoid a circumstance where you're distributing money to a company which is owned by the same trust that had the distribution. There's a thing called perpetual motion that's not necessarily what it is but it's where you, you're never re really ever distributing it out it's not saying you couldn't because you could distribute it's a discretionary trust you could go wherever it wants discretionary trust number one is running a business for example you wouldn't want it to be the passive shareholder in the bucket company because if the business venture failed well bucket company profits come into play We always say you've got active assets and passive assets. Your active assets need to have separate trusts owning them, whereas passive assets, if they don't do any anything other than receive dividends or they don't have any um, external liabilities, then they can be housed in that one discretionary trust. Ideally, you put all assets in different discretionary trusts, but that can become a bit unwieldy for clients and expensive for accounts fees and the like. And if you have two discretionary trusts, both have the same individual, and then one discretionary trust has 100% shares in the company, then the other discretionary trust can distribute 
to that company. Yeah. The fact that the company the still has to make that in a post entity election, but that's fine. Mm. Yeah, but they can do that. If the company already exists and you then sell the shares from the individual to the discretionary trust yep. to get asset protection, then you run into issues when you want to claim the tax losses. Well, I guess the bucket company probably isn't going to have tax losses. No, a bucket company wouldn't have tax losses. But when you have a company sitting there with a lot of tax losses yes. and you now make this company a bucket company yes. to get the yes. tax losses yes. out Fair of them, then you can't sell the shares because otherwise you lose losses. So in that case, it would be better to leave the company in the individual name and just make an interposed election, yeah, entity right. election. That's right. Or it depends it's on really the individual circumstances. It's really hard to say this is the one answer for everything. There are some circumstances where you, that is a better option. But in general, it's better to have those shares in a trust if that's how you can start it from the setup. I've done some work recently for a client. Two gentlemen, both older gentlemen, but one is probably 30 years older than the other. But he considers him his son and he even calls him his son, but they're not related. They're just very, very close friends. And the circumstances were such that the younger man wanted to get financed to buy a farm and couldn't. But the older gentleman, dad, I'll call him, he had sufficient credit and was able to fund it. Part of the bank's requirements were that essentially everything had to be in dad's name and he had to be the primary beneficiary of the trust that bought the land, notwithstanding the, uh, the other gentleman really is going to be the ultimate owner of this land, it was all bought in Dad's name. Now, the accountant for these people did what I, what I suggest not to do and they just put a family trust election in uh, because that's kind of how they did their business. The new trust comes in, okay, we'll do a family trust election. Circumstance happened that the bank debt was able to be paid out at a certain point and at that point they wanted to pass control to the real owner in their the minds, son. the son, who unfortunately for the law is not his son and therefore doesn't come within the family group. So at the later stage where that property was going to be sold, well, any distribution to the real owner, the son, would incur family trust distribution tax. Now, they were in the lucky window of being able to revoke that family trust election and there are strict timeframes on it and circumstances surrounding it and they were able to manage a get a revocation but had they not been able to, that would have caused fairly significant problems for them down the track, particularly if Dad had passed away because the circumstance might be that, well, okay, Dad might sell the land, make the capital gain, take the capital gain and pay the tax and give the balance to the son. But if Dad had passed away, well, it gets a whole lot more complicated. So that was a circumstance where when we came into the job, we were advised that this was kind of the plan and that was my first question. Well, hold on a minute, have we, have we done this? And they said, yeah, we have. Why is that a problem? I said, well, because... They're not actually part of the same family group. And the plan is that he is going to hand over control of this trust effectively for the younger man's family who are not part of the family group at law. So that's just one little, you know, worked out well in those circumstances. But had we been two years later, 
you may not have been able to get the revocation. So, what is the time frame? When and how can you revoke a family trust election? <coughs> it's largely to do with whether or not you have relied on it, which would mean have you claimed losses, uh, have you paid frank dividends through the trust. So the fact that, that you've put in a family trust election, if you've then used the mechanisms that it's designed for, then they won't allow you to revoke. In this circumstance, it was merely a landowner, so none of those other mechanisms really applied, so they were able to get a revocation. And when you have never relied on it, what time period do you have to revoke it? A family trust election won't be able to be revoked after the fourth year that it's in force. So if it's in force for four years, then you won't be able to revoke it after that time or if you've used the benefits of a family trust election. So if you use the benefits of a family trust election in the first year, then that's it, you can never revoke it. If you never use it, but it's five years ago, then you can't revoke it either. That's right, yep. So I think the thing to remember about family trust elections is that they shouldn't be made as a blanket rule. They should be made for a particular purpose. So if you're receiving a new trust into your client's circumstances, it's worthwhile thinking about, well, is it going to receive trust frank distributions from companies? Well, if we want to frank it, then we need to make that election. If there are losses that come into play in that group, well, perhaps we need to make one. But I think we just need to make more of a decision rather than just making the election. Welcome back. I think Paul makes a very good point that a family trust election is not a one-size-fits-all solution. In the next episode, episode 96, Paul McEnross will talk about the taxation of trusts. Until then, thank you for listening and thank you to Klaas for their support. Bye for now and see you in the next episode.